Welcome to Talking Mopars, episode number 25, and another installment of High Performance Heritage. This time around, we're talking about Plymouth's rapid transit system. We're also talking Project Car of the Week, high performance parts, and listener stories. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I'm your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Hello again, Mopar enthusiasts. We are back for another episode of Talking Mopars. And in case you haven't heard, Hemipages.com has officially launched. So as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, I want you to go check out Hemipages.com. That is run by my friends Chuck and Matt McMurray. They're great guys, and you might actually remember them from the conversation I had with them on Direct Connections, which was episode number 23 of the podcast. So if you haven't heard that one, go check it out, and then visit Hemipages.com. You can think of it as the Yelp or Yellow Pages for the Mopar aftermarket, and I truly see this being a valued resource in the Mopar community moving forward. So go check it out, hemipages.com. Before we really get running with this episode, I do want to say that I know there's a lot of you out there that are listening that have Mopar stories, and for some reason you've been hesitant to send them in or even call and leave a voicemail. I want to hear your stories, and so does the Mopar community. I've gotten some really good feedback about the listener stories segment of this show, and I want to see it thrive. So keep sending in your stories. You can reach me at my email, which is chris at talkingmopars.com, or leave a voice message at 209-28-MOPAR. And now, let's get this show on the road. This week's Project Car of the Week was in 1968. Plymouth Fury posted on Wednesday, April 22nd at 3 p.m. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right into the ad. Plymouth Fury 440 Big Block, $15,999, Birmingham. Moving ASAP, can't take her with me. No reasonable offer will be refused. 1968 Plymouth Fury VIP 440, factory 440 Big Block and factory AC. Super nice car with brand new Holly fuel injection and modern air conditioning upgraded factory air. Brand new wheels and tires with less than 5 miles on them. Everything mechanical on this car has been replaced with brand new or been rebuilt. The engine and transmission are all original with only 46,000 original miles. Title status is listed as clean. I really like this Fury, and the thing about Furies is they're part of the C-Body platform. Now, C-Bodies, they don't get as much love and credit as they should. They are really cool cars, and they are very large. But they, they have their own unique look to them, and this one is especially unique because it has what... Plymouth calls the fast top. So it's kind—it's of, not a full fastback. It's kind of like a half fastback. It's kind of like a half fastback. And it's a it's just a really cool car. And the cool thing about them is that you don't see them. You see more E-bodies and B-bodies on the road than you see really clean C-bodies, in my opinion. And I think they make great project cars. The only downfall I see to C-bodies is that they can tend to be a little bit hard to find parts for, mostly because a lot of these cars got crushed. I mean, let's be honest here. Um, they weren't as sought after as, say, the B bodies and the E bodies. So under 20,000 running and driving and allegedly numbers matching, that's a good deal. And this one's less than $16,000, runs and drives. It's got the four-barrel Super Commando 440 in it. 
and it's got the you know it's got the fast top it just looks really cool and the fast top is actually vinyl so that's a cool added feature it does have aftermarket wheels on it so it looks like those aftermarket um magnum 500 style wheels so it looks good and it's a really nice subtle dark burgundy color it's got black interior and it's just you know overall for a driver quality car it is really clean and i think you know you can't really beat a car especially in the mopar world for around fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars, that runs and drives and is very presentable. Like looking at the pictures of this car, I'm looking at it like I would love to take that thing to cruise night. You know what I mean? It just has a different look. You know, I can't really put my finger on the look, but it's not muscle car per se, but it's like luxury muscle car. I don't know if that makes any sense, but the car just has some really beautiful lines to it. And like I said, these C bodies don't get enough credit. And I know there's a lot of you out there that listen to the show that are C-Body fans and enthusiasts, and hey, I'm with you. I think they're really cool cars, and I wish I saw more of them at car shows. But this this 68 here looks, I mean, amazing. If you guys haven't seen it yet, be sure to head over to the Mopar Hunter Facebook page and check it out. Like I said, it was posted the 22nd of April on a Wednesday at 3 o'clock. So go take a look. Tell me what you think. I think it's a good cruiser. You know, something a little different, something fun that runs and drives that you don't have to sink a bunch of money into. And sometimes that's all we want. You know, some of us don't have time to take on a big project or even a small project. Some of us just want to throw down some cash, turn the key, and go for a drive. And I think this Plymouth Fury is perfect for that. So go check it out. That was Project Car of the Week. No Mopar left behind. This week's high-performance part belongs to the 1970 Plymouth Superbird, that was seen for a brief second in the 1993 film Dazed and Confused. The movie, I'm sure you guys all know it. It's a cult film, and it's basically about a bunch of teenage kids celebrating their last day of school in 1976. And, you know, there's parties, there's weed smoking, there's car cruises, and in the drive-in scene where the kids are over at Top Notch Burger in Austin, you can see a brief glimpse of a 1970 Plymouth Superbird. The interesting thing about this car is that it was black with white bucket seat interior, and that's all we pretty much know. You know, the car appears to be factory stock, and my research on the internet led me to some information that the car was originally B5 blue, and it's rumored to have been repainted the original B5 blue color sometime during the mid-1990s, but that's all I know about the car. I just thought it was really cool. A black Superbird with white interior. How cool is that? So that's this week's high-performance part. The black 1970 Plymouth Superbird seen in the drive-in scene on Dazed and Confused. All right, let's get into some listener stories. This week, we have two emailed stories. So let's get right into it. Our first story comes from Joel Laughlin. Here is Joel's story. Hello, Chris. My name is Joel, and I live in Paw Rump, Nevada. I love your podcast. I've been addicted to Mopars for about 50 years now. My Mopar story was going to be about how I became addicted and my first car, a 69 Charger. But then I heard your pick and pull slash butterscotch 71 Charger story. Here's my similar story. In 1995, I was living in Reno, Nevada. While pursuing the local pick and pull, I spied a 71 Charger 500. It was a 383 four-speed car, medium green exterior and green interior. The drivetrain was gone, but there was enough there for a good start for a project. I went to the office and talked to the manager. 
At first, he didn't want to sell the whole car, but eventually he relented. I don't remember the price, but it was under $1,000. The day that I went to retrieve the car, it was cold, rainy, and miserable. The manager said to me, man, you must really want this car to come out on a day like this. About the same time, I bought a 79 Ram Charger from a friend. I gave him a good chunk down and owed a balance. When I got the balance together, I called my friend, but I got no answer. I went to his house. It was deserted. A few months later, I was driving around and saw him. I said, hey, I've got your money. He said to follow him to his new place. I followed him to some apartments, and when I pulled into the parking lot, lo and behold, there was a Butterscotch 71 Charger SE sitting there. I told my friend that I would meet him inside in a few minutes because I just had to look at this car. It had the hideaway headlight grille and a white left fender from a 72 to 74 with a funky 70s metal flake stripe. Then I noticed the thing that nearly made my heart stop. A factory power sunroof. Brown interior, leather buckets, console, slapstick, AM radio with a console-mounted cassette player, power windows, and AC. White canopy vinyl top, luggage rack, and dual exhaust with the slotted chrome tips. Chrysler always had the coolest exhaust tips, but those are my favorites. Well, I went inside and asked my friend if he knew who owned the car. There was another friend of his there sitting on the couch. He said, yeah, it's mine. He was extremely proud of the fact that it had the numbers matching 383. With his permission, I went back out and popped the hood. The engine was painted orange and it was a B block. So far, so good. Then I looked at the VIN. The fifth digit was a U, not an N. I went back in and told him it was originally a 440 car. You'd have thought I kicked him in the gut. Immediately, the wheels in my head started turning. I offered to trade him my Charger 500 with a 4-speed and pistol grip shifter, and I'd pull the 383 from the SE and put the whole deal in the 500. To my surprise, he said yes. I pulled the engine out, but it turned out to be a 400. I never even took notice of the big, ugly cast crank balancer. I asked him if he still wanted to do the deal. Again, he said yes. I gave him the 500 with the title. He said the title to the SE was at his parents' house in Doyle, California. He disappeared after that, and I never did get the title. Now I knew why he agreed to the trade. Oh well, I started a title search and found that it was not stolen. A short time later, the company I worked for went out of business. My parents wanted me to move to North Carolina and my wife kind of liked the idea. I put the charger in storage, packed up the family, and moved to North Carolina. Things didn't go so well at first and I got behind on my storage payments. When I got back on my feet, I called the manager of the storage place and asked her what it would take to catch up. She said $250 would temporarily hold off her auctioning everything off. I sent the money by Western Union to my in-laws and they showed up at the storage place only to find my car and my parts collection outside of the unit. Several guys were there bidding on my car. It was more than $250, so I lost the car. I was devastated. A few years later, we moved back to Reno. I bought a 70 Cuda, which was pretty much a rolling shell with a dash. 383 Auto Plum Crazy. I struck up a friendship with the seller. One day, he called me and said that he had just sold a 65 GTO, and he was taking it to the buyer in Mound House. It's an industrial area near Carson City. We took it to a guy that did paint and body on classic cars. He had a yard full of cars. I started walking around and way off in the corner I spied a butterscotch roof with a white vinyl top. The closer I got, the faster I went. It was my SE, but now it had two butterscotch fenders with RT stripes and no grill. The driver fender had the marker light area cut out. Turns out the current owner had bought it for the grill and the two fenders to put on his 71 RT. They cut the marker light area out and welded it to the white 72-74 to fender that I mentioned earlier. He sold it to me for $800 and I've managed to hang on to it despite a nasty divorce and life in general. I have been gathering parts and soon I'll be starting the restoration. But first, I have to finish a 66 Charger for my son. P.S. Months after getting the car back home, I noticed that the fender tag was missing. I know it was there before because I had decoded it. Someone told me that the owner of the shop where I had found the car liked to take them off and keep them in a stack on his desk. He skipped town and had taken money from people and never did the work. Hopefully I'll find the broadcast sheet to prove what it is. In the meantime, I'll take lots of pictures during the disassembly. I build my cars to drive while appearing stock, so it probably won't be a concourse date-coded numbers matching restoration anyway.
Hey, Joel, thanks for sending in your story. Wow. This is one of those stories that I love to hear about a car that got away that you were lucky enough to get back. That story does not happen that often in the car world. I'll tell you that right now. So for those of you out there that are listening that have let one go, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and it has somehow found its way back into your life, you are very lucky and fortunate because there's a lot of cars that I know, many people that I know, wish they could get back. And, you know, sometimes that's just not in the cards and life has different plans. So, Joel, it was really cool to hear that you got your charger back and that you have a new project and that you're also working on a current project for your son. Very cool. Keep me posted on the builds for the CUDA, your son's charger, and your old charger. That'll be really fun to check out. It's always fun to hear relatable stories, and it's even better when it's about a butterscotch charger. I've kind of been on the fence about that 71 charger I've been looking at. There's, man, it needs a lot of work, and I've been trying to hunt down some of the parts that I need for the build if I were to buy the car, and they're either A, hard to find, or B, way too expensive. So I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do about that. I still want the car. So I haven't given up on my butterscotch charger yet. We'll see where that goes. Hopefully this COVID stuff will be over soon and I will get a chance to try to make some more money and get the ball rolling on that butterscotch charger. Thanks, Joel, for sending in your story. It was a fun one. And like I said, keep me posted on your projects. And that goes for any of you out there listening or the folks that have already sent in stories. I love seeing other people make progress on their projects. And in a way, it motivates me to get my butt out in the garage and get some work done too. This next listener story was sent in by Mike Converse. And Mike Converse sent us a story in celebration of 426. Let's get into Mike's story. When our first child was born, my parents bought us a convertible car seat, rear-facing for an infant and front-facing for a toddler. Unfortunately, our 1970 Cuda was not designed with a car seat in mind. We ended up selling it, and I bought a 68 Dart 270 from a guy at work. Slant 6 four-door. Fast forward seven years. That morning, I was looking through the classified section of the newspaper. I came across an ad that caught my eye. 1970 Cuda 383 four-speed car, now with automatic 15x7 rally wheels, rally dash, needs upholstery. $4,300 or best offer. It was April 25, 1990. It was too early to call and I had to go to work. I couldn't stop thinking about it all day. As soon as I got home, I called the number. The seller's mother answered and said that her son would be home around 6.30. I explained that I was very interested in the car and asked if I could come now and wait for him to return. She gave me the address. It was about 30 minutes from me. I left my wife at home along with our two kids to check out this Cuda. When I got there, I couldn't believe my eyes. Sitting in the driveway was a 1970 Plymouth Cuda with aged EK2 vitamin C paint. The bucket seats had been reupholstered at one time but were now threadbare. The dash pad was cracked, but I didn't care. The body showed no signs of damage or rust, and the clutch pedal was still in place. When the guy got home, he started it up. It had sort of a rattle in the engine like a diesel makes. I later learned that this was a condition that three previous owners had tried to resolve with no luck. I didn't care. He had the 15 by 7 rallies in a shed along with a beat-up set of trim rings and fender well moldings that had been passed down from guy to guy each time the car was sold. Then it got real. I had no way of buying this car. I had a family now, and I was poor. I explained that I really wanted the car, but still had to figure out a way. I didn't want to lowball him, so I pointed out that he had stated or best offer in his ad. I asked him to give me his bottom dollar, and I would see if I could somehow come up with that much. He explained that he had decided that he just didn't want to lose money on the car. He needed $3,800 to break even. I told him that I would be in touch. 
When I got home, I racked my brain but could not come up with anything. Then I thought of something that I had never considered. I had received in the mail a letter from my credit card company with a blank check attached for the purpose of transferring a credit card balance from a different account. I called them up and asked if I could use the check for this purpose. They told me I could use the check to buy the car and he could then take it to the bank and cash it the following day. I called the guy right away and his mom answered again. She said he went to the mall with his girlfriend and she didn't expect him back until late. This was before everyone had cell phones so I asked her to have him call me when he got home. It didn't matter what time it was. He called me back at about 10.30 that night. I explained everything about the credit card check to him. I told him that he could talk to my credit card company himself if he wanted to. He asked, when do you want to come get it? I answered, right now, and he said, okay. I drove to his house, wrote out the check for $3,800, and he handed me the title. He drove the Cuda back to my house. I opened the gate, and he pulled it in my backyard. Then I gave him a ride home. The deal was done, and I got home after midnight. That's how I bought a 70 Cuda on 4-26-1990. By the way, the rattling sound turned out to be the sound that an engine makes when you run pump gas in an engine that has 12.5 to 1 TRW pistons. Mike C., Modesto, California. Hey, Mike, thanks for sending in your story. Wow. 3800 bucks for a Cuda four-speed car. You know, that <laughs> that's unheard of in today's market, even for a complete rot box. So, you know, although that was, what, 30 years ago, that's still, you know, that's not that long ago, folks. You know, so it's crazy how much these cars have either accumulated in value or how crazy these owners of these cars have gotten in the last 30 years. But, you know, there is inflation and all that. But, and of course, people are going to blame the auctions. But look, there is one known fact. A car is only worth what somebody's going to pay for it. Okay? If somebody came to me with a 70 Cuda 4-speed 383 car that was in running driving condition, you know, that maybe wasn't a 10 out of 10, maybe this car is a 6 out of 10. You know, it's good enough to get by. You can take it to the cruise night and be proud to stand by it, you know. But you're probably not going to enter it in any big Mopar shows with the expectation of winning a first place trophy. But if somebody came to me with that car and said, Hey, look, here's, you know, this Cuda for 3,800 bucks, I wouldn't be able to get to the bank fast enough. Okay. And if that same person came to me and said, Hey, I got this Cuda here for 38,500, I'd go, Whoa, that's a lot of money. You see, it's different nowadays because these cars are looked at as investment cars. Back then they really, I mean, I'm sure they were looked at as investment cars on, a certain level, but a lot of it was just your fun car, your fun weekend car. And nowadays, you can't really have one of those fun weekend cars because now they're so old, they've appreciated in value so much that it almost puts them out of reach. That's where ratty Mopars come in, and that's why I'm such an advocate for going out there and finding a running and driving project or a project that you can get running and driving really easily for not a lot of money so that you can at least go have some fun. You know what I mean? And build it as you go. I always say that. And I'm always going to be a spokesperson for the Ratty Mopars out there. Thanks again, Mike, for sending in your story. And that was Listener Stories. If you want to hear your story on the show, feel free to send me an email and I'll read it on the show or leave a voice message and I'll play it on the show. My email address is chris at talkingmopars.com. And if you want to leave me a voice message, you can do so at 209-28-MOPAR. That was Listener Stories. Everybody offers a car. Only Plymouth offers a system. Heck, anybody can build cars with big engines. Plymouth's rapid transit system is a lot more than that. As the name implies, it's a system. A total concept in transportation that goes far beyond eight pistons and a steering wheel. 
the rapid transit system is racing at Daytona, Riverside, Cecil County, and the race cars themselves, dragsters, superstocks, oval stalkers, the essence of high-performance machinery. The rapid transit system is information, the straight scoop from Plymouth to you, tips on how to tune your car, modify it, which equipment to use, and how to set the whole thing up for racing. The system is person-to-person contact, us and you, at supercar clinics conducted throughout the country by our own racers. The system is high-performance parts, now conveniently packaged and available through your Plymouth dealer. Above all, the RTS is the product. Everything from a Valiant Duster 340 all the way to a Hemi Cuda with a quivering air grabber. Each car in the system is a complete high-performance car with suspension, brakes, driveline, and tires to match. Compare Plymouth's Rapid Transit System with mere cars, and if you can't beat it, join it. That was one of the first ads that Plymouth used to promote the new Rapid Transit System for 1970. Now, back on episode 20, we talked about the 1968 introduction of Dodge's Scat Pack. It wasn't until 1970, a whole two years later, that Plymouth would create their own high-performance vehicle marketing program that they called the Rapid Transit System. The vehicles in the lineup were the 1970 Cuda, GTX, Sport Fury GT, Roadrunner, and Duster 340. Now, since I do plan on having high-performance heritage episodes on each one of these cars on their own individually, I won't go into too much detail about them all right now. So I'll basically give you a quick rundown of the cars, and then I'll throw in something cool to close out this segment. So if you were to get a 1970 Cuda, you had five engine choices. You could get a 340, a 383, a 440, a 446 barrel, or a Hemi. If you got a GTX, you could get a 440, a 446 barrel, or the 426 Hemi. The Sport Fury GT did not have a Hemi option or a small block option. You had the choice of a 440 or a 446 barrel. The Roadrunners, you could get a Roadrunner with a 383, a 446 barrel, or a 426 Hemi, and the Duster 340 was only available with a 340. It's clear to me that in 1970, Plymouth really wanted to promote the Cuda as the car that could fulfill any of your needs. Maybe you didn't need a big Hemi. Maybe you just wanted something fun and sporty. You could get the 340 Cuda, and if you wanted a monster, you could get the 446 barrel or the Hemi car. So... In my opinion, I think like if you look at all the options of all these cars, the Cuda seems to be the car that a lot of people would have looked towards if they really wanted a lot of choices. So I thought that was pretty interesting looking at the cars. And one car that stands out to me in the Plymouth Rapid Transit System of 1970 is the Sport Fury GT. It's interesting to me that they had the 440 and the 446 barrel, but they didn't have an option for a Hemi. The C-bodies like the Sport Fury GT is a big car. Now, they did give you the 446 barrel, which was cool, but come on, it would have been so cool to have a Sport Fury GT with a Hemi. Am I wrong? I think that would be really cool. And, you know, every car in this lineup, with the exception of the Sport Fury and the Duster, you could get a Hemi in. You know, I think they may have made a mistake there. I think they should have offered the Sport Fury GT with a Hemi, and I think they should have did big block Dusters too. I think that would have made a lot of sense, especially since they had big block A-bodies in the past. You know, they had Dodge Darts with big blocks, and they had Plymouth Barracudas with big blocks. So why not throw a big block in the duster? I never understood that. That's why I wasn't alive back then and working for Chrysler, because I probably would have made dumb decisions like that. And I would have said, hey, we got a duster 340. Let's do a duster 383 or a duster 440. That would be pretty fun. And heck, while we're at it, let's do a duster Hemi. Let's do a Hemi duster. (laughs) You know, now, if I were to compare the 68 Dodge Scat Pack versus the 70 Plymouth Rapid Transit System, that would be a really tough 
I might, I might have to do an episode of this show where I compare the SCAT pack and the rapid transit system because both of those programs at Chrysler were amazing and they all produced some really, really cool cars. So I think that would be a fun comparison. But that's pretty much the gist of the Plymouth Rapid Transit System for 1970. I thought I would just go over the cars and give you some engine options. And then I wanted to include something that was kind of fun to close out the show. So now that you have a general knowledge of the so now that you have a general knowledge of the Plymouth Rapid Transit System, let's do something a little fun here. There were actually some drag test comparisons that were performed by none other than drag racing legends Ronnie Sox and Buddy Martin in some of the Rapid Transit System cars of 1970. The cars they tested were the Duster 340, a GTX with a 444 barrel, a Roadrunner with a 446 barrel, a Cuda 340, a Cuda 383, and a Hemi Cuda. It should be noted here that all the vehicles tested had 727s, with the exception of the 340 cars, the Duster and the Cuda. So, let's go over some of those drag times and some of the comments that Sox and Martin made from their experiences behind the wheel of some of the cars of the Rapid Transit system. Let's start with the Duster 340 out of 10 quarter mile runs. The Duster 340 averaged 14.07 in the quarter mile at 100.09 miles an hour. And along with the test on the drag strip, they also ran all these cars at Willow Springs, which is a two and a half mile road course. So along with a 14 second quarter mile, they really pushed the duster on the road course. Their average time was 1 minute 50.9 seconds at an average speed of 81 miles an hour. And those were the averages from five laps. And here are some of the comments Sox and Martin made about the Duster 340. I'd like to own this car maneuverable. Like the way you can hang the tail end out. Nice little car. And it doesn't cost much. Think maybe I'm going to buy me one. So that was the Duster 340. Let's move on to the Roadrunner 440 six barrel car. Out of 10 quarter mile runs, they averaged 13.61 at 106.10 miles an hour. And at Willow Springs, out of seven laps, their best time was 1 minute 50.3 seconds at 81.06 miles an hour. And here are Sox and Martin's comments on the Roadrunner. Performance-wise, one of the best cars Plymouth offers. With the air grabber and the beep-beep horn, a ball to run around in. Brakes feel tremendous. The six-barrel is really a sweet motor. When do we eat? All right, let's move on to the GTX. Out of 10 runs, the GTX averaged a 13.62 at 102.91 miles an hour. And on the road course, the average was 1 minute 53.8 seconds at 79.09 miles an hour. And the comments from Sox and Martin were very strong and comfortable, the family type supercar, like the dash layout, nice finish, a quality automobile. Now we're getting into the tests of the CUDAs. So let's go ahead and start with the CUDA 340. Out of 10 runs, the average quarter mile ET was a 14.55 at 98.3 miles an hour. And out of five laps, the average lap time at Willow Springs for the 340 CUDA was 1 minute 50.5 seconds at 81.45 miles an hour. The comments that Sox and Martin made about the 340 CUDA were, really handles the real sporty car of the bunch. 340 really screams, mild understeer, easiest car to adapt to. Moving on to the 383 CUDA, out of 10 laps, the average quarter mile was a 1439 at 98.98 miles an hour. And out of five laps on the Willow Springs course, 
The average was 1 minute 51.9 seconds at 80.43 miles an hour. And the Sox and Martin comments were, Car just flat runs good. Slapstick shifter really gets it done. Gets around almost as good as the 340. Like the color. Let's eat. And last but not least, the elephant-powered Hemi Cuda. Out of 10 quarter-mile runs, the average ET was a 13.54 at 107.26 miles an hour, and out of 6 laps on Willow Springs, the average lap time was 1 minute 52.7 seconds at 79.86 miles an hour. Here were the Sox and Martin comments on the Hemi. Boy, nothing but nothing sounds like a good old Hemi. A real hoss. Carbs flutter just a bit in the turns. Car understeers a mite, but it feels flat and solid. So folks, what did we learn about these tests? I'll tell you one thing, we didn't learn much because we all pretty much knew that the Hemi Cuda was going to beat everybody in the quarter mile, but not by much. The Roadrunner with the 446 barrel ran an average 1361 at 106.1 miles an hour, and the Hemi Cuda ran an average of 1354 at 107.26 miles an hour. So it barely beat the 446 barrel Roadrunner, and that's no surprise. Everybody, there's always this argument about the 446 pack or six barrel versus the Hemi, and who's faster. I guess it just depends on which car you're in. I would have loved to see the Hemi Cuda versus the 446 barrel. That would have been a fun run. So we learned that the Roadrunner is just a little bit slower than the Hemi Cuda in the quarter mile. But who won on the road course? If you would have asked me to take my best guess, I probably would have said the Duster 340 would have won. And I would have assumed that because it's the lightest car of the bunch, and I would assume that it's more nimble. And with the 340, you know, that thing wraps out really good, so I wouldn't be surprised if that thing was just hauling around the corners. The only problem is that it was a four-speed. Now, would the four-speed have helped on the road course? I don't know. I guess it depends on who's shifting it. But what we learned is that the car that was actually fastest on the road course was, surprise, surprise, the 446-barrel Roadrunner. It actually beat out the second-fastest car, which was the 340 Cuda, followed by the Duster 340 in third place, which was a surprise to me. The 340 Cuda with the four-speed is just a little bit faster than the 340 Duster. I'd really like to drive a 340 Duster and a 340 Cuda and just see what the difference is. Because in my mind, I would think that the Duster being lighter would be a better handling automobile. But I guess I was wrong. The Duster did beat out the Cuda in the quarter mile, so that's kind of curious too. So I guess if you were comparing the two and which one you really wanted, styling aside, and you were just looking at the numbers, do you want to be faster in the turns? Or do you want to be faster in the straight line? I'm always going to say faster in the straight line, but that's just me. So I guess I would have to go for the Duster 340. But those are the cars of the rapid transit system, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you might have learned something new about the Plymouth rapid transit system that maybe you didn't know before. So thanks for joining me here today on this installment of High Performance Heritage. Everybody offers a car, but only Plymouth offers a system. If you can't beat it, join it the rapid transit system. That does it for us this week on Talking Mopars. I realize this episode was a little late, but I hope it was worth the wait. I also hope you guys had a happy Hemi Day, and I can't wait to talk Mopars again with you next week. For more information about the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. And if you have a Mopar story, or maybe you know somebody with a good Mopar story, 
you can send them to chris at talkingmopars.com or you can leave me a voice message that I'll play on the show. And the number for my voicemail is 209-28-MOPAR. And also, before I go, don't forget, go check out hemipages.com. My prediction is that Hemipages is going to be huge. So go check it out. Join in on the fun. And don't forget, no Mopar left behind. My name is Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.